Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as Australian TV and movie historian, author, Super Aussie Soaps. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Andrew McCarter. Hi there, Steve. Hello, Andrew. Please, can we start by asking, in social settings, how do you introduce yourself? Oh, um, yes. Well, I guess, look, I've called myself various things over the years. Sometimes I call myself <laughs> an entertainment reporter. Um, but I tend to think of myself mostly as a bit of a TV historian. Uh, but then sometimes when I'm, uh, filling out that form, when you arrive at Sydney airport, sometimes I write down, uh, TV producer, because I just think that writing down (laughs) that you're a historian on a customs form sounds a bit naff. Because one of the things I always do like to pride myself on is that, you know, most Mm -hmm. of the times when I've worked, I've kind of always written and produced my own stuff. So I guess in that sense, I like to call myself a producer sometimes. Well, your history, your relationship with television has been a long one. It's not just uh, about you looking back and, and you know, acknowledging your uh, your knowledge of history, Australian television history, but you've also been a part of the machine, haven't you? Yes, I have. I, I always loved TV as a kid. I was always obsessed with it. I always wanted to work in television, but because I couldn't figure out which area to go into when I was finishing high school, uh, my parents pushed me off into another direction. And so I worked in tourism for 13 years. Uh, And when I decided to finish there, I decided to follow my true love, which was TV. And again, I didn't know where to start. But luckily, because I'd been working for the Queensland Tourist and Travel Corporation, and I knew the state really well, I figured the smart thing to do would be to become a location manager. And so that was how I got my uh, first job in TV. And then I looked around to see what else was going on there and decided that I would work as a publicist. So because I then worked in all those areas behind the scenes, it has given me a fairly um, good rounded view of working behind the scenes and then being asked to appear on camera. And it's also given me a sense too that when you are working on a TV show and trying so hard to make it work, uh, I understand that people get really upset when the finished product then goes out there and a smart ass mm. like me comes along and says, it's not very good. Um, because when you're in the moment, and I worked on two shows that were universally panned by critics, which were Paradise Beach and Pacific Drive. And uh, both of those shows, uh, we tried so hard to make them good, but Mm -hmm. it just, you know, they just weren't very good, particularly when they started. I think they got a lot better as they went along, but, um, you know, you've really got to hit the ground running from that first episode. So, you know, sometimes I think people who are really there in the moment and have put their life and soul into it, sometimes you have to wait until they leave the project and they can look back in retrospect and, and give it an honest, honest appraisal and go, yeah, well, I wanted that to be great, but it was just okay. 
Yeah, that that's really fair. You've hit on a, a, a pretty reasonable topic too. Nobody in television really goes into making a show wanting it to be no. crap, do they? That was really interesting because the first person to actually say that to me was Lorna Luft, Liza Minnelli's sister, when she was mm. on the Kerry Ann show. And I used to do a weekly movie spot there. And she was co-hosting the show. And as we went to the commercial break, uh, she said, what movie are you going to be talking about? And I said, da-da-da-da-da. And she said, is it any good? And I said, no, it's terrible. And she said, you're not going to see that, are you? And I said, well, yes, of course I am. That's my job. And she said, but Andrew, nobody ever sets out to make a bad movie. And I looked at her thinking, yes, that's right. You start in Grease 2 and where the boys are 84. (laughs) And, and yes. I thought, and, and then I said to her, well, wow, I've actually never thought of it that way. And you're right. But I said, what you've got also got to understand too is that there might be a couple out there now. There might be a woman watching this TV show that's thinking about having a night off with her partner this weekend. They might be hiring a babysitter for the kids. They might be wanting to have a meal and pay for parking. And to go to a movie this weekend might cost them a lot of money. And I said, I can't tell them to spend that money and waste their time on this film. And she said, oh, my God, you're right, too. So it was really interesting. It had never been explained to me in that sense before. And so what I've often always tried to do is I, I hate being a, a negative person, but I can't lie about something mm. if I don't like it. And I like to think that I'm just one guy and who cares what I think? Somebody else out there might really like it. But I always like to try to say, if you don't like this show tonight, there's something else really good tomorrow night. Or you could be streaming this instead because it's fantastic. That's the way I try and find a balance. Absolutely, there is now 2016 so much choice in the too Australia. much choice in the so much too choice. much good TV. Steve, it's doing my head in. Yeah. Well, what's got your attention at the moment? Well, I'm loving the Australian dramas at the moment. I've been loving mm. Rake and Clever Man and Offspring mm. and Secret City, and then the Kettering incident. Oh my God! Yes. I mean. They've all been fantastic. And, and every time you think you've seen the best new Australian drama of 2016, another one comes along that's even better. So uh, it's it's just fantastic. I, I can always make time to see the Australian dramas. I should add Wentworth into that list mm. too. They're having a crack of season yeah. two. I can always make time and always will make time to find the Australian dramas because that's always been my first love. It's always the the shows that I want to watch before everything else. Uh as, it's funny, though, as, as the years go on, though, I find myself less enamoured of American dramas yeah. and actually a lot more interested to watch uh, something from BBC or ITV. I'm, I'm, as I get older, I tend to, I'm tending to appreciate the British dramas a lot more, um, particularly in this golden age of TV. I know there's a lot of great American cable dramas out there. But uh, if it really comes down to it when I've got time, I'll probably try out the British drama before the American drama these days, and that's the truth. Is that because uh, you have an affinity or a heritage? uh, No, not at all. In fact, look, my dad liked British TV, but my mother, who kind of ruled the remote control... She uh, came from an Irish background, so she was not a fan of anything English. 
<laughs> and she particularly hated those British sitcoms, you know, the on the buses and all mm. that sort of stuff. My dad liked them and he'd take yeah. me off to the drive-in to see a Carry On movie or something like that. But my mother <laughs> didn't. She didn't like that sort of stuff. She was always much more pro-American. She loved America. Um, but, yeah, no, I just find that, you know, the some of the contemporary dramas that the BBC have been doing recently, like uh, Dr. Foster and Undercover, yep. I just find them completely and utterly gripping. And there's just something about that kind of pared-back style of the British dramas where they're not trying too hard that really, really captures my attention yep. these days. I love the first season of Broadchurch for exactly that reason. Absolutely. So uh, subtle and there wasn't, you know, grandiose exaggeration or it was just this wonderful story that eked through these amazing characters. So, so. And you really get a sense of, I really believe British dramas, they come across as very, very real Mm. to me. And I guess I probably believe a lot more British drama these days than I do American dramas. Yep, I can see that. I think if we look at... American drama, by comparison, it tends to be something fairly hyper-real or um, exaggerated compared to the Brit stuff that we're just talking about. Yeah, and I mean, I don't watch those uh, American broadcast network dramas at all, full stop. NCIS, Law & Order, uh, CSI, Criminal Minds, never watched an episode from start to finish ever. I did uh, happen upon Hawaii Five O the other night and thought, oh, this isn't bad, you know, and there was nothing else on. Yep. I just lay on the couch and watched it. But as a, as a rule, I tend not to watch those sort of self-contained one hour. We'll wrap up and find out who the killer is by the end of the episode. I'm much more interested in watching um, a six-part thriller with mm. that's got a bit more grit to it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So how would you describe, you mentioned your mum and dad, how would you describe your experience of family? My experience of family, I had a really happy childhood. I was an only child and that's probably where I got my love of television from. Um, I know that it was always a source of great concern for my mother. She thought that I was too obsessed by TV and too obsessed by (laughs) cinema and all that type of thing. Um, and mm. probably thought that it was going to be uh, somewhat of a negative in my life. But, you know, it, as it turned out, the fact that I had this amazing retention to remember things of TV and, and the fact that I kept scrapbooks and all that sort of stuff turned out to be uh, really useful in my later life. But, um, yeah, it was. it's always been about TV for me and, of course, uh, movies was right in there too. I lived, I grew up in Brisbane, in the suburbs of Brisbane. There was a local picture theatre um, two blocks up the hill. The woman across the road worked there every Saturday night. She worked in the candy bar. So from a very, very early age, uh, I would walk up to the movies with her every Saturday night. Uh, I would go upstairs to the dress circle, which was closed off to the public. Mm. I'd sit there by myself. I'd watch a double bill movie every Saturday night. I'd be able to go into the projection booth and check out what was going on in there. Um, wow. and, and then she'd walk me back down the hill and I'd tell her what the movies were all about as we walked home. And she'd walk me to my front door and I'd go home. So that's where I got a real knowledge in cinema too. I basically went to a, a double feature every Saturday night for years and years and years. 
That is an amazing education. Now. Yeah, and you know what? A lot of those, a lot of them were probably slightly unsuitable to watch. <laughs> um, but because I was in the care of Mrs. Holsworth across the street, it was never questioned. And mm. half the time, I'm pretty sure my yeah. parents didn't even check to see what was on. And the other thing that I really <laughs> remember is that on a Friday or a Saturday night, I was yeah. allowed to stay up as late as I wanted to and watch TV. My parents would go to bed and I'd be allowed to sit up. And I can always remember because we moved house in 1975 and when we moved house, we also got a colour TV. So I have these really distinct memories of TV, TV in black and white in one house and things I saw in colour at the other house. And, for example, I remember watching the movie that that I would now consider the greatest Australian movie of all time, which is Wake in Fright. And mm-hmm. I remember seeing that on TV late at night in black and white by myself as a kid and being oh, immensely disturbed Gosh. by it. And then going back to see it at the movies, you know, years and years later when they had, you know, refound the print and restored it and all that and thinking, oh, yeah, this film's mm-hmm. mega disturbing, but it's okay. I'm expect I, I, I'm up for it this time, but of course there, there was all this other stuff going on that I hadn't picked up as a kid, and so yeah. I was revulsed all over again in a new way <laughs> when I saw it. So I think it's you know just the greatest Australian film ever made. But yeah, my memories of TV are very much split into black and white and colour, and I know that I watched inappropriate stuff late at night on a Friday and Saturday night, even though TV probably went off at a certain time there. TV used to finish mm. at 1am in the morning or something like that. The problem for me as a kid, though, was that if my parents were awake and sitting in front of that TV set, they were in charge. And the, the <laughs> truth was that they didn't let me watch number 96 mm. and the box and stuff like that. I got in occasional episodes now and then, maybe on a Friday night or something like that. And eventually when we got the new house with the colour TV, they got a little black and white portable in the kitchen and I was able to go sit in that kitchen every night and watch TV. And then they went, okay, you're older, you can do whatever you want in there. But, you know, a lot of that stuff that, you know, I am particularly interested in, I particularly love, I didn't get to see a lot of it when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, some of those shows have been lost forever. So, Sadly, I'm never going to see it. it. It is a shame, isn't it, that as an industry, um, there wasn't the prescience to keep all of it. Just let's reuse the tapes. Yeah, I know. Can you believe it? And also this sense that when we did make that shift in 1975 from black and white to colour, there was this complete, yeah. oh, well, that black and white stuff's not important it's anymore. Done. We don't need yeah. it. It's heartbreaking to think that we threw away so much of our TV history. But, of course, you have to look at the zone that they were in in the 70s. Nobody could see that uh, home videos were coming and DVD. Nobody could really see that there were going to be 100 channels. They were just caught up in the moment. And they particularly thought, too, like if you look at shows like Bellbird and Number 96, nobody thought that anybody would want to re-watch a soap opera, you know, a serial that was... Running yeah. five nights a week, they just thought no one will ever want to watch this again. And, and it's such a shame because they were such 
important pieces of our TV history. And, you know, you know, I know we stormed the UK with our TV shows in the mid-80s when they started watching Neighbours, but that could have happened 20 years earlier with uh, Bellbird because a package of episodes were sold to uh, Thames Television and they played and they wanted more. Um, but And the actors... Uh, were, were really happy about it, but there was some problem there. Someone at the ABC got militant about how much uh, residuals should be paid or something like that, and the deal fell through, and then they started wiping the tapes so they didn't have complete episodes to screen anywhere. And I remember Alan Hopgood saying to me, you know, as actors, we were furious. You know, we would have been quite happy for the show to have been paid in the UK, and we didn't want any extra money for it. We would have just loved a show like this about Australian country life to have made it in England and been successful. And that might have then opened up avenues for them to watch our shows a lot earlier because eventually they did become obsessed with Australia through Neighbours and Home and Away. Yeah, wow. It's it's such a crazy situation, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure in part two there was a, a bean counter uh, at play in this, the reusing of yeah. tapes because it costs so much money not only to buy but to store them. We've got to keep them somewhere, all that sort of stuff. And they're just going to sit there and ultimately at that point they would see them degrading. Well, you know, every January when Rage does those great all-night, you know, repeats of Countdown episodes, a lot of those episodes only exist because uh, the story goes that Molly Meldrum and the producer went into the ABC on a Sunday afternoon and stole those tapes off the site. Yeah, because they were dem- the ABC bean counter was demanding that they give up the tapes so that they could tape football over them. And, of course, no. they just went, that's not going to happen. So, yeah, a lot of those really early uh, 70s episodes of Countdown that still exist are there because they stole them off site and then returned them once the uh, uh, cultural significance significance of countdown had been established goodness me andrew there's that's what we need a delorean time machine for is to go back and save some yeah totally because you know there's there's a there's a couple of horrific stories one is that um black and white episodes of the mavis bramson show are were put into landfill at a tennis court at Channel 7 in Epping. There's about 90 episodes of the Mavis Branston show still being held by the National Film and Sound Archive, so it's not all gone. Mm. But, you know, to think that number 96 throughout 1972, 73 and 74 is the number one rating show in the country and is smashing taboos before anyone else in the world about homosexuality and breast cancer and all these incredible things that they did and only 30 episodes out of 540 still survive to this day. That is heartbreaking. Well, the good news is, Andrew, every episode of MasterChef will be kept for the ages. (laughs) Goodness me. So what challenges you, Mr. Mikado? What challenges me? Well, what challenges challenges me me today is how I continue making a living doing what I do now. There's less presenting work uh, for me now, and I'm probably looking to do some work more behind the scenes and maybe work as a producer in the future because I'm not precious about 
I have to always be on TV. I actually really love the medium and uh, mm. just love making and being on TV sets. And, you know, the jobs, when I worked up on the Gold Coast at Movie World Studios, you know, I just love crew. I love people that work on film sets. Yeah. And I'm quite, I'm quite happy to work behind the scenes if I can do that. So I'm probably shifting my focus to try to get some more work behind the scenes. But at the same time, I probably have to look at getting some sort of other revenue stream happening as well because TV is such an up and down business. And I've been extremely lucky and extremely fortunate. I've had, you know, contracts uh, at several TV networks pretty much since 1999, uh, but I haven't had one for the last 18 months or so. And it really puts a dent in your bank balance when you don't have that regular pay packet coming in. I can imagine. So I I have to change the way that uh, I look for work and and what I do. Yes, if World Movies asks me to host a movie festival for them, of course I'm going to do that. You know, I love working with those guys. I'll always do that sort of work and I'll work at a commentator. But, you know, it's just you've just got to accept that that's the way it is. I don't want to be this tragic guy sitting at home saying, my phone doesn't ring, what am I going to do? You know, I have to get back out there and find new things to do um, and, yeah. uh, and keep busy. Well, you're certainly keeping busy at the moment. On Foxtel on World Movies, a, a good friend of yours, the stuntman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you've been involved in this uh, Ozploitation series that's running on World Movies. Yeah, um, World movies are such a cool channel because the first thing that makes them really unique is that they're the only channel in Australia that can legally screen R-rated movies uncut. Mm. Um, And so the first time I actually met somebody from uh, World Movies, I went to one of their secret cinema uh, presentations that they were doing and, you know, got introduced to... Uh, Chris Keeley, the manager there, and I just said straight off to him, you know, they were doing these really great movie festivals at the time, and I said to him, you guys should be doing an Australian movie festival because you've got all these really iconic R-rated films from the 70s that, you know, a lot of them don't get aired on TV anymore. And he just looked at me and said, that's a fantastic idea, let's do it. And he did. And when we did that first Aussie Exploitation Movie Festival three years ago, uh, the night the night it began, Alvin Purple was the highest rated movie on Foxtel that night, and that That's week crazy. of movies is still the highest rating event in their channel history. And that's fantastic because I love the fact that that means there's probably a new generation of film goers that have discovered those really vital films that the Australian film industry used to make. So I love it that I've been able to introduce those films to a new audience. But I also love it too that they work because I think that there's, you know, if you look at what's going on, if you look at the majority of TV channels, there seems to be a kind of a a 20-year mentality there. The, you know, it's now 2016 and you see a lot of mm. 90s nostalgia. And if you read um, about, you know, website, I read about one the other day. I forget which one it was. It was like maybe The Feed or something like that. But 
They actually admitted if we do a 90s story and say what had happened to the cast of Buffy and Dawson's Creek or Party of Five, the traffic to the site grows uh, enormously. And I seem to remember that too when I was living in the 1990s. There was this huge uh, thirst for 70s nostalgia as well. So I think there's always like a, a 20 thing, 20 year thing that goes back in nostalgia all the time. And the 90s are big at the moment. But that doesn't mean that you ignore what happened in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s, particularly when it comes to movies, because a good movie is a good movie no matter what year it was made. Um, yep. And, you know, the fact that we don't repeat any old Australian TV shows on uh, TV, but those channels are still replaying to death British and American reruns, I just think it's really yep. sad that we don't replay our history more often. So that's why I love that world movies go to so much trouble to make these Aussie movies look so cool. It's just fantastic. We could always do with more episodes of all together. Yes. <laughs> look, why not? You know, it's um, yeah. all this stuff's sitting there in the vault and there is, you know, why hasn't, for example, why hasn't Channel 9 ever replayed Chances? Why isn't it? It's never been repeated. That means most television contracts usually allow for two repeats. You know, I know that actors usually get paid. They've got, you know, one first run and then they get paid two reruns. So they could, I think, quite legally and quite easily replay Chances twice if they wanted to. Why couldn't they play it late at night on Go or one of those channels and see if it found an audience? It's a perfect cult TV show that would find an appreciative audience. Kids that had never seen it today sitting up watching TV would be astounded at what happened on that TV show because it's so crazy. It's just little things like that where you just say, why don't you even give it a go? If it doesn't work, take it off air. I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. But why don't we try and see if there's an appetite for Aussie nostalgia? Absolutely. I mean, we're replaying Underbelly. Uh, one one ep a week late at nine yeah. nine. There's no reason why when that series finishes that chances couldn't fall into that time slot. For no example. reason at all. I mean, people if they started watching that show would be absolutely that you know the fashions would be hilarious because you know it's it's yep. 1989 to 1993. Solid. You know that it's yeah. got all this you know nudity in it. Um, all of these actors that we've now yes. seen in other Jeremy shows, Sims Jeremy Sims and Michael Caton's in the show. There's got to be yeah. some interest in some of these old shows. And it's amazing to think that it never got repeated and that Channel 10, who had episodes at East Street playing at 12 o'clock midday years and years ago, then yeah. took it off air and never replayed all those episodes with Mr. Bad and all of that. You just think, Give it a go now that there's all these digital channels that are so yeah. desperate for content. Um, why aren't you just throwing it on there in an early morning slot or something? Just give it a go. Look through your vault and see what you've got Australian and let's see if we can 
look back at some of our own TV nostalgia instead of endless repeats of Becca and Just Shoot Me. I mean, Just Shoot Me, seriously. Mm. Those shows aren't so great that they need to be on TV 24-7. I look at a channel like 11 and just think, I'm sorry, it's lazy. They're still repeating Everybody Loves Raymond. Mm. They're still repeating Kings of Queens. They just bought a bunch of shows. It was a CBS-owned channel. They've got a bunch of shows from the library. They just play them endlessly on a loop and Nobody ever looks at that and says, "Why don't we try something different for a change?" I had such a thing for Kathy Godbold as a uh, as a late <laughs> yeah, Kathy when Chances aired. One of the nice oh. girls in Chances. Let's put it that way. Yes, little known fact: Chances was the first sighting of Kate Langbrook's breasts. Yes, it was, and she talks about that all the time, doesn't she? I love the yes, fact she that loves it. Kate Langbrook was topless in Chances and has never tried to cover it up, that she looks back on it and is able to have a great laugh about it. Good on her. She totally owns it. Do you get back to Queensland much, Andrew? I don't get back to Queensland much these days. I used to go back there all the time when my mother was still alive. She was in Brisbane. Um, I still have uh, a heap of uh, cousins up there um, and I haven't been up there lately. I mean, I do. I love southeast Queensland. Uh, you know, I grew up in Brisbane, but I probably spent, you know, every moment that I could on the Gold Coast or the Sunshine Coast. I particularly love uh, <laughs> going back there. Um, so, yeah, I haven't been up there for a while, but it's always on my list, you know, if, especially now that it's cold and it's winter, I just think, oh, gosh, when's it going to get just a little bit warmer? I'd love to go to the Gold Coast for a week and hang out. Um, although at this time of year, I'd probably uh, head up to Cairns where I'd be guaranteed a bit of a warm lie around the pool. Yeah, that's, well, tough life, mate, let me ah. tell you that. Can you tell me, what's your favourite place to travel to? Um, I spent five years living in Canada, uh, yes. for working for the Queensland Tourist and Travel Corporation. And that had me promoting Queensland all across North America. I always was fascinated by America. I went all across America and Canada for five years and really got that out of my system. I still got a lot of great friends <laughs> in Canada. And for years and years, I went back and mm -hmm. saw them. Um, every couple of years. And eventually I just said to them, this has to stop. I need to see the rest of the world. So now I meet my Canadian friends in other places and we've done trips Great. to France and Italy and Spain. And mm. I absolutely uh, love Europe. Uh, I spend, uh, I go on a vacation with a bunch of friends uh, to Thailand uh, I've done that a few times. I absolutely love that. And I, I'm loving exploring all around there. I've been to Myanmar, Burma, where my father was born. I retraced his wow. steps and discovered to my absolute amazement that my grandfather, who I never met, not only did he own a hotel in Yangon in Burma, but he also had a silent cinema in Mandalay, and nobody in the family had ever bothered to give this information to me. Even though I'd grown up as a kid obsessed by movies and TV. No, my father had never said to me, by the way, you do know that your grandfather ran one of the first cinemas in Burma. That's amazing. Amazing thing what to a find connection. out. It's actually in the blood. That, yeah. That's incredible, yeah. Andrew. Wow. 
gives you a bit of a chill. So yeah, I do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I really want to go to uh, Vietnam, and that's my next sort of Asian destination to go to. And I'm particularly uh, interested at the moment in doing Sweden and Denmark and Norway and do some of those Nordic countries, which I've never really been to. Um, that's sort of on my list. Whenever I watch The Bridge or one of those Scandi Noir thrillers, I sit yeah. there and think, oh, I've got to go to this place and find out what goes on there. Yes, totally. It looks amazing, yeah. doesn't it? And New Zealand too. New Zealand is mm-hmm. um, a country that I really would love to spend a bit of time in and explore it. You know, I've been there on short trips. It's so drop-dead beautiful. I would just love to, in summer, go down there for a month, hire a car and just drive around and see as much of the countryside as I could. You know, I think New Zealand's an incredibly cool place. I'm not one of those Aussies that bags uh, New Zealand out at all. I mean, when you look at the TV that comes out of that country for a tiny little country, for them to make such incredible TV shows, wow. I think it's a really interesting place and would love to spend some more time there. Yeah, I totally got hooked on the uh, the Almighty Johnson. Yes, well, see, I put Outrageous Fortune is right up there mm-hmm. in my top TV five top five TV yep. shows of all time. I thought that was the most incredibly written show, and I'm watching the prequel now, West Side, and it took me a few episodes to get into it, but I've I've decided I really like that too. I just think that uh, James Griffin and Rachel Lang are geniuses because you know to do long running dramas like that. You know, you write a bunch of core characters and what was so fantastic yeah. about Outrageous Fortunes is that they kept adding all of these other supporting characters and by the time the show finished, they had this huge canvas of all of these incredible characters and all of them had were fantastic, you know, and uh, that is really good writing because, you know, I'm a fan of soaps and I watched all the primetime soaps, you know, but often dipped out before the end because, you know, when original actors leave the show, the only way that show's going to survive is if you've written in some really good new supporting actors that can take over and fill those gaps. And so many shows kind of went down the gurgler because the new characters that came in just weren't as good. But my favourite shows have always been the ones that uh, the supporting characters that they bring in over the years have been so fantastically written, they've been able to step in and keep that show uh, worth watching to the very end. So what fleshes out your top five shows? Well, now I've said, I knew you'd ask me that, and now I'm not quite sure what it is. Okay, so number 96, definitely. Uh, Knott's Landing is my favourite American drama of all time for that very reason. Good writing pretty much to the end. Outrageous Fortune. Um, I would put a comedy in there like uh, probably something that I could put on any time and laugh no matter how many times I've seen it and that would probably be absolutely fabulous. Now, what haven't I got there? I've got a British show, I've got an American show, a New Zealand show, an Australian show. I'd probably put another Australian show in there. And, okay, let's say that the best Australian TV show I've seen maybe over the last five years was Redfern Now. Yeah. I just thought as could- you know, a bunch of individual shows that somehow all meshed together, I just thought that was awesome. Nothing makes me happier than the fact that the ABC created that Indigenous drama department 
and we've now had shows like The Gods of Wheat Street and Clever Man and all of this incredible new indigenous talent in this country. And I keep waiting for more of them to cross over into other Australian TV shows. We've got Miranda Tapsell in Love Child and we've got Deborah Mailman in Everything Else. But I'm sorry, go back and have a look at those episodes of uh, Redfern Now. There are some fantastic actors out there. I've always said that, you know, it's, you know, I actually think that Neighbours is a lot more multicultural and inclusive than they used to be. But I think that Home and Away is really lagging behind in this area. They're probably the only soap in the world right now not to have regular gay characters in it let alone someone that isn't white. I just think there needs to be a gay in the bay. I don't understand this reluctance (laughs) by Seven to just keep that show about bad boys that are running drugs and have guns Mm. and need to be rehabilitated by pretty girls in the bay. I think it would be, you you know, Home and Away isn't doing too well in the ratings up against the current affair these days. And I think it'd be really fascinating to have a river boy or a Morgan brother or have one of these really hyper-masculine, buffy blokes start questioning his sexuality or be revealed that he's a secret gay. And let's look at the fallout from that and get all those tough guys in the town to accept them. You know, if every other soap in the world can do it, why can't Home and Away? Come on, Seven. You've got a PG rating. You can push the envelope a lot more than Neighbours can in a G-rated time slot, and it seems to be doing that with, you know, there was an episode of Neighbours recently that had four gay characters in it in a G-rated time slot. Home and Away is playing it too safe. Mm -hmm. It's a long way from little Sally and her imaginary friend. It is a bit. Look, look! I say good on Home and Away. The fact that they're still there and the fact that they're still pulling 700 to 800,000 viewers per yeah. night in a really important time slot at 7pm, that is an incredible achievement. And they're going to celebrate their 30th anniversary next year. And, you know, yeah. they have been, you know, pulling figures like that for that long. That's an incredible achievement. I still think, though, they're playing it too safe and I think they need to shake things up. Uh, Andrew, yeah. thank you so much for the chance to speak with you today. Please know the things that you said are are very special and you're highly valued. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Um, And uh, keep doing what you do too. It's good to have other people out there as obsessed about TV. In fact, maybe more (laughs) obsessed about TV. Obviously, you're a a tweeting person. Are there other social accounts you would want people to know Um, about? I need to uh, get on Instagram. I haven't done that. I'm going to do that one of these days. I've been told I have to do it. Um, (laughs) Facebook is something that, you know, I kind of keep fairly personal with a couple of work plugs in there. (laughs) Twitter is where I get my news now. You know, I'm on Twitter all day. It's I'm looking for entertainment yeah. news, but I also kind of uh, that's kind of where I get my political news these days. Um, but yeah, I've been kind of told that I've got to get on Instagram, Snapchat. I'm sorry, it's just a step too far for me at the moment. I know the ABC have just started doing Snapchat, so it looks like it's here to stay. But I'll get my head around Instagram first. Yeah, just just sign up, post a photo, you're in business, and see what everybody else does. I think I just don't know that I need one. Yeah. The, the the reason I've never joined Instagram is that I waste so much time on Facebook and Twitter every day procrastinating. (laughs) I'm nervous about Instagram becoming something new that 
keeps me from doing real work. Well, there's another hour of your life. (laughs) This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at Andrew Mercado is indeed human.